0: Chapter 12 marks the beginning of a new section in the book of Revelation. We concluded the seven trumpets last week, and we begin a new vision cycle this week. So before we just plunge ahead into this new cycle of visions, I thought it would be wise for us to step back for a moment and examine the underlying structure of the book, The main body of Revelation which runs from the beginning of chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22 and verse 5 is not a random collection of visions which John saw on the Isle of Patmos. It's not a theological hodgepodge of symbols and signs that John just took in a bowl and dumped together and out came Revelation. Far from it. There is... A literary structure, a rhyme and a reason that ties this book together that is second to none in the entire canon of Scripture. The more that I read the inspired writings of the Apostle John, his gospel, his letters, revelation, the more convinced I become that this simple Galilean fisherman was a genius. He was a literary savant. And it reminds me of Luke's words in Acts 4.13 that when the, the Sanhedrin, that is the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the intelligentsia of the day, the theological elites, when they encountered the bold preaching of Peter and John, the fishermen from backwoods Galilee, Luke says they perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus does this in and for his people. He makes the wise, or makes the simple wise, he makes the shallow deep. Spend time with him. Spend time with Jesus and you will find a depth, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual depth That you never knew existed. Indeed, part of being restored into the image of God is the renewal of your mind. Spend time with Jesus and he'll sharpen this. And John, John is exhibit A. He's brilliant. And this book is brilliant. There is a rhyme and a reason to the flow of revelation that will blow your mind. And and we would do well to examine it and recognize it. It helps us understand what he's doing, where he's been, and where he's going. After an introductory vision of the risen and exalted Son of Man, I, I just want you to follow through with me. Get your, get your fingers nimble. Let's flip through the pages of Revelation. Chapter 1. After an introductory vision of the risen and exalted Son of Man, in which John received on the Isle of Patmos... From the risen Lord Jesus, seven messages for the seven churches of Asia Minor, the main body of Revelation begins, and it starts at the beginning of chapter 4. And Revelation 4, one all the way to 22.5 contains a series of apocalyptic visions in which John sees both the tribulation of this age and the glory of the age to come. The book then concludes with a postscript, a final message to the churches. So we're going to zero in first on the main body of Revelation. I want to show you its structure, 4. one to two five. It's comprised of three main parts. First, there is a vision of the heavenly throne room that reveals to us the one who sits on the throne and is in sovereign control over all history, and all creation, chapters 4 and 5. And it's important to begin there because what follows would be terrifying if we didn't know Him who sits on the throne in the right hand of which is the scroll. Second part, there are seven vision cycles detailing the tribulation of this age, each of which culminates in the return of Christ and the final judgment. That runs from chapter 6 all the way through the end of chapter 20. And then finally, John sees a vision of the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and the eternal state. In other words, the consummation of our redemption in the age to come. That's 21.1 to 22.4 or 5. Right? So that's the structure of the main body. Let's now zero in on that second part, the vision cycles. Today we come to the third of those cycles of visions, each of which portray the tribulation of this age, the return of Christ, the final judgment. Let's walk through those. Chapters 6 and 7 all the way to 8 1, we found the seven seals, the first vision cycle. And there was a promise for us, for the church, inserted between the 6th and the 7th seals. Those were the visions of the church of Revelation 7. Second vision cycle was the seven trumpets, chapters 8 through 11, with a promise for the church inserted between the 6th and 7th trumpets. That was the visions of the prophetic role of the church in chapters 10, 1, to eleven, thirteen. The third vision cycle is chapters 12 through 14, that we're beginning today. The seven symbolic histories, and why it's called that will be clear momentarily. Again, we find a promise for the church inserted between the sixth and the seventh history. Fourth vision cycle, chapters 15 and 16, you have the seven bowls of wrath, and predictably... There's a message for the church between the 6th and the 7th bowls. Chapter 16 and verse 15. Fifth vision cycle. Chapter 17 all the way to 1910. You have seven messages of judgment upon Babylon. With a promise for the church. Between the 6th and 7th message. And then another vision of the church after the 7th message. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb at the beginning of 19. Sixth vision cycle. We see the return of Christ and the white horse judgment, chapter 19, verse 11 through 21, the end of the chapter. And then the seventh vision cycle is the thousand year reign and the white throne judgment, chapter 20, verses 1 to 15. And we find another promise for the church inserted in verses 4 to 6. Seven vision cycles detailing the same time frame, the tribulation of this age, all having the same conclusion, Christ returns the final judgment happens, and we're ready to enter into the new heavens and the new earth. And finally, at the end of the seventh vision cycle, the bride comes down out of heaven from God, and heaven meets earth. So that's the, that's the second major part of the main body of Revelation. Now let's dial in even closer, and let's... Let's explore verse, chapters twelve to fourteen in that third vision cycle. What Vern, Poith- excuse me, what Vern Poithras in his book *The Returning King* calls the seven symbolic histories. So now, chapters twelve to fourteen, what we have are seven visions of the history of this age, but with the main characters represented by larger-than-life symbols figures. Personalities like a woman, a dragon, a beast, a false prophet, an army of 144,000 and so on and so forth. Follow along chapters 12 to 14 with me. The woman, the dragon, and the child, that's the first history, chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. The woman, the dragon, and the children, the second history, verses 7 to 17 of chapter 12. The beast from the sea, beginning of chapter 13, is known elsewhere just simply as the beast, 13, 1 to 10. The beast from the earth, the second half of chapter 13, who's known elsewhere simply as the false prophet. The lamb and the 144,000, that's chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. The three angelic messengers, chapter 14, verses 6 through 12. Culminating again, predictably, as we've seen now twice already, and we'll see four more times in the return of Christ, and we see the harvest of the Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes down like a harvester, and He swings His scythe, and He gathers His wheat into the barn, and then He cuts down the grapes, and He tramples them in the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. I wanted you to have this road map to know that there is an end to the study, for one thing. To know where we've been, to know where we're going, and to know that there is a rhyme and reason for our stops along the way. John is doing something, and we're right in the middle of what he's doing. He is showing us this age And the church's role in this age as we suffer the assaults of the dragon, as we're preserved by the grace and power of God, and as we fulfill our role as prophets to our neighbors and the nations. Today we're going to cover the first two of those symbolic histories, which we find in chapter 12. The first, the woman, the dragon, and the child, with a capital C tells the story of the birth of Christ, of Satan's attempt to destroy him, of Christ's victory over Satan, and of the church's pilgrimage in the wilderness of this age. Let's break it apart a bit at a time. Look at verses 1 and 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant And was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Who is this woman that John sees in the heavens? Clothed in radiant splendor with a crown and twelve stars and the moon under her feet. What's John seeing? Well the woman represents the covenant people of God. And I use that phrase very intentionally. The covenant people of God. Because the woman does not represent merely Old Testament Israel, nor merely the New Testament church. Rather, the woman represents the people of God, the true people of God of all ages and all times and all places. All of those who are included in the covenant of grace. All those who are justified by faith in the promise of Christ. Adam and Eve. Abel and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses and Aaron, Samuel and David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Peter, James, John, Paul, Luther, Calvin, Edward, Spurgeon, you, me, if we're in Christ by faith. All whose names have been written in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain, All whose names have been inscribed from the foundations of the world. All those for whom Christ came and purchased their salvation and made them a kingdom and priests to our God. That's the woman. We, believer, are part of the woman. The faithful Israelite of the Old Testament and the faithful Christian of the New Testament are all one people. The covenant people of God, the heirs of the promise made to Abraham. So the woman represents the covenant people, everyone whose name has been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. The woman is clothed with the sun because she reflects the glory of her bridegroom. She reflects the glory of Christ who John saw in chapter 1 and verse 16, with his face shining like the sun in full strength. She's being conformed into the image of God, who is clothed with splendor and majesty, who covers himself with light as with a garment, and stretches out the heavens like a tent, Psalm 104. What you're seeing is the bride, the radiant bride, who stands very intentionally in stark contrast to the scarlet and tawdry prostitute that we will meet in Revelation 17, who represents the unbelieving people of the world. Revelation is showing the saints of all ages as a spotless bride, and all of the unbelieving of the ages as a scarlet whore. The contrast could not be any greater. And that's what John wants us to see. The image of the moon under her feet points to her dominion, Revelation 2.26, I will grant you authority to rule the nations, even as my Father has granted me authority. The church has dominion. The crown of twelve stars points to her royal authority to reign with Christ. Many times in Revelation, the saints are promised a crown, and they're promised a throne, and they're promised authority to reign with Jesus. Jesus. The number 12 appears numerous times in Revelation to denote the fullness of the people of God. One thinks of the multiples of 12 in the 144,000 or the 12 gates or the 12 foundation stones in the New Jerusalem. The woman is pregnant and she's crying out in the agony of childbirth. The child to whom she will give birth is Jesus Christ, as we will see in verse 5. What John is doing here is drawing upon the very first gospel promise that is found in Genesis 3.15, in which God swore to Satan and promised to Adam and Eve in the aftermath of their terrible sin and in the midst of his terrifying and dreadful curse, he said this, I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promised enmity between the serpent and the seed. And that's what we find in Revelation chapter 12. God promised that from the woman would come a Savior, a Redeemer, a Messiah, who would crush the head of the serpent even as the serpent strikes his heel. This serpent crusher then, we learn from later New Testament passages that pick up on this promise and expound it for us, this serpent crusher will overcome the serpent through the shedding of his own blood. So the Apostle John interprets Genesis 3.15 for us in his first epistle, 1 John 3.8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, To destroy the works of the devil. To crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the serpent crushing savior of Genesis 3. The one born of woman. Born under the law. That he might redeem those who are under the law. That we might receive the adoption as sons. Verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Alright, the great red dragon is going to be identified for us in verse 9 as that ancient serpent, okay, linking back again to Genesis 3, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The image of a dragon is used many times throughout the Old Testament to apply to evil kingdoms who rose up by the power of Satan to oppress and persecute the people of God. I can count at least one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I can count at least eight instances in the Old Testament where one of the prophets will speak of an evil kingdom, be it Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome, and so on and so forth, and reference them as a dragon. This is how the dragon, Satan, has oppressed and attacked the woman, God's people, throughout history. He has raised up and empowered, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, beasts. Nations, kings, and kingdoms who are hell-bent on persecuting and killing the saints. The dragon's seven heads and ten horns denote his power and authority, seven and ten being numbers that John uses throughout his apocalypse to denote the fullness or completion of power. But Satan is a counterfeit. He may appear to have seven heads and ten horns and fullness and omnipotent power, but he's nothing but a pretender, because there's another one that we'll meet in Revelation 19, who also wears many diadems, and he alone is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he will reign upon the earth. As John watches, the great red dragon sweeps with his tail a third of the stars out of heaven and casts them down to the earth. Now, if you know your Old Testament, this is ringing a bell. It's it's an allusion to Daniel chapter eight in which there's a little horn that comes from one of the beasts, stands for Antiochus Epiphanes, a historical figure who was very, very much a beast and an antichrist in his day. And he's a type of the final beast and the final antichrist to come. The little horn throws down, Daniel 8.10, some of the stars of heaven and tramples upon them. Now, stars of heaven is Daniel's way of referring to the saints. Daniel 8.10, Daniel 8.24, Daniel 12.3, the saints who overcome will shine like the stars of the heavens. Therefore, what is being symbolically pictured here when the dragon sweeps a third of the stars to the earth is the trampling of God's people. I know, I know that, that you've heard that taught before, that this is the, the original fall of Satan and those are a third of the angelic host. It's not. Daniel doesn't read that way, and John's using Daniel. They're the saints. A third of the stars to the earth, the devil is trampling God's people in a vain attempt to destroy the Messiah before he's born. To destroy the Messiah while he's still in the womb of the woman, so to speak. And Old Testament history bears this out, and and the intertestamental period of which Daniel prophesied, you will read through those and you'll find horrific stories of persecution by beastly demonic rulers who are intent upon destroying the people of God. Why are they doing that? What is it about Israel? What is it about the, the, the nation? of What is it about Jerusalem that they hate so much? There is a dragon who stands behind them who knows that from this woman is coming a serpent crusher and he's trying to destroy the woman before the serpent crusher comes. But he doesn't succeed. When the woman was about to give birth, the dragon stood before her, ready to devour the Messiah as soon as he appeared. One thinks of Herod's slaughter of the infants of Bethlehem just after Christ's birth. Or the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Or the constant opposition and hostility which Jesus encountered everywhere he went during his ministry. Get thee behind me. Satan, or when when Satan entered into, possessed Judas and used him to set in motion the murder of Jesus, to the very moment of Jesus' death on the cross, Satan was trying to devour the promised seed of the woman before he could crush the serpent's head. But even with all of his hideous strength and his malicious cunning, Satan can never overthrow the sovereign purpose of God. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations. That's not a hopeful statement. Maybe if the dragon doesn't get him, he'll rule all the nations. That that is the word of the sovereign God inscribed in his scroll from all eternity. It's going to come to pass who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Ascension Day was this last Thursday. That's what it's talking about. Caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Satan was unable to prevent the Messiah's birth And he was unable to stop the Messiah's serpent crushing ministry. Why? Because God had written it down in the scroll of destiny. His unalterable sovereign will declared that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. As you know from last week, that's a quote from Psalm 2 9, isn't it? He shall rule the nations with a rod of iron, the Son, the King, the Messiah, the Lord. The king was born, and he was triumphant. And the very place of Satan's apparent victory, the cross, became the place of his ultimate defeat. So the author of Hebrews writes, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery. I love that. Through death, he destroyed him who has the power of death. That is the devil. The devil's going to strike his heel, and he's going to crush its head. The ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, was crushed by the triumphant death of the seed of the woman, who is the son of God. Jesus was then raised in power. He was caught up into heaven through the clouds to take a seat at the right hand of the throne of God where he reigns and will continue to reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. And all of the nations belong to him. Meanwhile, the woman, the covenant people of God, us, we fled into the wilderness where, like Israel in the exodus... We are protected, preserved, and nourished by God. And there's that time frame again for 1260 days, three and a half years, 42 months, time, times, and half a time, which is symbolic in Revelation for the entirety of this age, from Christ's ascension to his descension. Therefore, what is pictured is the protection and nourishment of the church, the people of God. God. And it's the same thing that was pictured in the ceiling of the 144,000 in Revelation 7. And the measuring of the temple in Revelation 11. It's showing the same thing from different angles. Do you see it? God will protect his people and preserve them in faith. Even while they are persecuted throughout this age. That's the first history. The second history, which runs through the end of the chapter, tells the same story, only in different and greater detail. This second history focuses attention on Christ's decisive defeat of Satan and on his people's victorious resistance to Satan's continual and vicious attacks. It begins with a description of celestial conflict, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Is this a description of Satan's original prehistoric rebellion in which he led a number of the angelic hosts in a revolt against God's sovereign rule and was subsequently condemned to everlasting enmity with God? Well, the truth of the matter is that we don't know very much about the fall of Satan and the demonic hosts. What we think we know about the fall of Satan comes more from John Milton in Paradise Lost than from the actual scriptures. God simply does not reveal much of that portion of history to us. All we have are glimpses and clues and what Jesus tells us in John 8.44 that Satan was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. But we do know this with certainty. Something drastic, something cataclysmic, something that shook the cosmos happened at Christ's first coming, in particular at his death and resurrection. So what I think is pictured here is not something that took place in ages past, but something that took place as a direct result of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I want to read you three verses that indicate that Satan was cast from heaven not back in Genesis or before Genesis but at the first coming of Christ. Three verses that suggest that Satan was cast from heaven when Christ rose from the the dead and ascended to his throne. First one is Luke 10.18. When Jesus sent out the 72 disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom. They returned to him and they reported to him with joy that even the demonic hosts were subject to them in Jesus' name. And Jesus immediately responds like this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When Christ appeared, bringing with him the kingdom of God, something changed in the heavenly places. Satan was thrown down and the demons fled in terror before the light of the kingdom. Second verse. The week of his death. John 12. The week of his death, while preaching in Jerusalem in the very shadow of the cross, Jesus announced Satan's impending defeat. Listen to what he says. Just a few days before he's crucified. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When? Now. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Christ's death and resurrection brought about Satan's defeat. It loosed his stranglehold over the nations such that the gospel could be preached throughout the whole world and the nations made glad in the saving power of Christ and Jesus have his inheritance that was promised to him. Third, Colossians 2.15. Paul wrote to the church of Colossae and said that at the cross of Christ, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them In him. Rulers and authorities for Paul refers to the demonic powers, the demonic realms. God confiscated their weapons when Christ died. Because their weapon, if you read on, their weapon was the law. And God took that weapon out of their hand and he nailed it to the cross. Therefore they were were subject to open shame. They were cast out, disarmed, and the accuser of the brethren was thrown down. Revelation 12, 7-9 is a description of Satan's defeat, not in creation, but at the cross. And it is cast against the backdrop of the heavenly warfare that's described in Daniel 10 and 12. When Christ died, thus achieving decisive victory over the powers of hell, Michael and the host of heaven rose up and cast Satan and his forces out of heaven, and the result seems to be twofold. Number one, Satan has now turned his great wrath towards the earth, like Sauron who turns his great eye towards the kingdoms of Middle Earth, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. And secondly, his control over the nations is in some way bound, that's the biblical word, restricted with the effect that the gospel and the church spread to the ends of the earth and Christ receives His inheritance of nations. Those two things happened when Jesus died and rose again. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So the victory of Christ is announced by a loud voice from heaven which declares that now by the death, resurrection, and especially the ascension of Christ, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of His Christ have come and the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down who accuses them night and day before God. This is a reference to Satan who is often shown in Scripture in his role as the prosecuting attorney in the courtroom of God. One thinks of Job 1 and 2 or Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3 Now, I'm not going to say much today about verses 10 and 11. Lord willing, I hope to return to them next week, and we're going to spend all of our time there, because you you need to know how to handle the accusations of Satan. You need to know... What to do in the day when the accuser whispers in your ear and reminds you of your guilt and your failures and your sins and the indwelling wickedness of your heart and the weakness of your affections for Jesus. And he tries to drive you to unbelief and, and hopelessness and despair, telling you that you are unworthy to stand in the presence of God. And I want to help you. I want, us to, I want us to glory in Revelation 12, 10 and 11 next week. And in the confidence and assurance we have through the blood of Christ. The word of our testimony. And because by the power of his spirit he's causing us to love Jesus more than we love our lives. But that's next week. Because Christ has died and risen and ascended on high, Satan has been cast down from heaven to earth and he has no more legitimate claim as the prosecuting attorney of the people of God. So Paul, right, can you hear him shouting from the hall of Romans? Who shall bring any charge against one of God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who is raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, who always intercedes for us. No charges against the saints. The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. But having been cast from the heavenly courtroom, he has turned his fierce wrath toward the earth. And in his great wrath, satan has been spending these ages these three and a half years these 1260 days this time times and half a time doing what he does best lying and murdering slandering and accusing but we will conquer him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony and by loving christ more than we love our lives The last section of the vision describes what happens when Satan is cast down and turns his fierce wrath upon the earth, and in particular upon the saints who dwell there. Verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Again, the woman refers to the covenant people of God as a corporate, historical whole. The woman is the bride. The woman is the covenant people of God. The woman is the church. Her offspring are individual saints, Christians. So the woman is the church. The woman's offspring are The individual Christians in much the same way that Paul says that the church is the temple and Christians are the living stones that make up the temple. It's the corporate whole and the individual. So you are a part of the woman and you are one of her offspring. After the coming of Christ, the woman is synonymous with the church, both Jew and Gentile, who are in Christ by faith. And during this age, once again signified by that time frame, time times half a time, 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, all referring to the same thing. This age, the church is in exile in the wilderness of this world. Like Israel, right? Between the exodus from Egypt and the entrance into the promised land. This is how John views the church as the new and true Israel, the redeemed from the bondage of Egypt, so to speak. Sin and slavery to Satan by the strength of God's arm and by the might of his power. In fact, John borrows from the language of the Exodus in verse 14, two wings of the great eagle. It comes from Exodus 19.4 when the Lord told Israel... You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And in this time of wilderness wanderings, the church is protected by God's power and is nourished by manna from heaven. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. What does Satan do? How does he attack the church, the woman, in this age? Well, you'll notice in verse 15 a phrase that we've seen before. I wonder if you caught it. Out of his mouth. Do you remember that? Revelation 9, sixth trumpet. When the demon horses that slaughtered a third of the earth by the fire and smoke and sulfur that Came out of their mouths. Three times in that passage, John is very careful to tell us that their power to destroy, their power to kill, was in their mouths. The smoke and the brimstone that comes out of their mouths. And in that parallel passage in Revelation 16, you see the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet send out frogs that are unclean spirits out of their mouths that gather the nations in this final apostasy and rebellion against God. That phrase, out of their mouths, is John's stock phrase for death by deception it's lies he's a liar from the beginning and he's lying and he's trying to sweep away the church in a flood of his lies his heresies his blasphemies did we not read that in the seven letters to revelation isn't that what the nicolaitans were doing isn't that what the prophets of balaam were doing isn't that what the woman jezebel was doing the river that flows out of the mouth of the dragon represents false teachers and heresies that have assaulted the church from its very inception. They are lies from Satan's mouth that flow into the church through Satan's ambassadors. And even a cursory survey of the New Testament will reveal that the apostles saw the presence of false teachers and the false doctrine that they bring as a real and imminent and pervasive threat. To the life of the church. It still is. But the declaration here is that Satan will not be victorious in utterly drowning the church in his flood of lies. God will protect his people. Remember, they're sealed, they're measured, they are preserved. Just as God caused the earth to split open and swallow Korah in number 16 and those who followed him in his rebellion. So he will cause the earth to open up and swallow the dragon's river of lives so that the church will be preserved to the end. Which only makes the dragon more furious. And So being unable to destroy the church as a whole through his false teaching, he determines he's going to make war on the saints. He can't destroy the woman because on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Individual churches may fall To false teaching, and many of them have, but the church has remained strong through the ages. So he's going to turn and he's going to start attacking individual saints, picking them off. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now remember, the woman refers to the church as a corporate whole, the bride of Christ. And her offspring refer to individual saints or Christians. So chapter 12 ends with the dragon standing on the sand of the sea, furious, enraged, determined to make war on the saints. And chapter 13 is going to open with the dragon summoning forth from the sea a beast who's going to execute his war. Now, we will return next week. Thank you, by the way. There was a lot of symbolism that had to be unpacked. Thank you for being attentive. Thank you for loving the Word of God and saying, teach it to me. I want to know what this means. I've, got, I, I've received emails. Thinking, what does this mean? You're hungry. Thank you. Next week, we're going to come having built this foundation and understanding what's going on here, and we're going to drive and we're going to say, How do you handle indwelling sin and indwelling guilt? How will you overcome the fury of the dragon? But I want to leave this week with just four four thoughts for you, for First Baptist Nixa, because I don't want it to be all up here this morning. So open your heart and hear with the ears of your heart. Four thoughts. Number one, Revelation 12 should teach you that you are hated. You are absolutely, utterly hated by an enemy. You have an adversary who despises you and all of his malicious power is bent on your destruction. Therefore, you dare not meander blithely through this life unaware of his evil intent and his wicked schemes, or else you will fall prey. Case in point, let me just give you one very practical example. Don't just channel surf as if the television is not a medium through which the dragon will attack you. Don't be unaware of his schemes. He is making war on his saints, and he is smart, and he will do it in the most effective, efficient means necessary. And for most of us, those come through the transmission of digital images. You can't be blind to his menace, or else you will fail. So Peter wrote in his first epistle, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So the devil wants to eat you. He wants to devour you. And evidently, it is within his power to cause the brotherhood, the brethren, you, much suffering. So just as in the case of Job, it is his desire to cause you so much pain, so much grief, so much tragedy, so much suffering, that you would rather curse God and die. That's his his M.O. in your life. But your weapon is faith knowing that God is sovereign over your sufferings, sovereign over over Satan, and your call is to stand firm, to resist the devil, and next week I'm going to show you how. Number two, you should know you're protected. You are sealed, you are measured. God may, and often does, allow Satan to sift you as wheat, but Jesus prays for you, that your faith may not fail. God will preserve you safe to the end as you continue to rest and rely upon Him. Number three, you are nourished. Twice in this passage, verses 6 and 14, John says that the woman is nourished in the wilderness just as Israel was. God gave them manna from heaven and He does the same for you. Our battle is spiritual and so is our daily bread. Feed on this word so that your soul will not starve and Satan will not find you weak. Finally, you are victorious. Did you notice how John frames verse 11 in the past tense as if it were already an historical fact? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they loved not their lives even unto death. When Jesus died, He did not merely make your salvation possible. He made it actual. He he didn't merely die to purchase your pardon from sin. He purchased your perseverance in faith. He purchased your full and complete salvation. There will not be any lost in the wilderness. None. Not even you. So though the dragon rages against you with great wrath during your days on the earth, you will one day rejoice in heaven. You will achieve victory by the Spirit through the blood over sin and over Satan. You will have it. For everyone who is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. 1 John 5, 4. So keep believing. That's it. Keep trusting. Resist the devil. Firm in the faith. And you will taste the victory that Christ has already won on your behalf. My Father, again... I don't know what your will is through this word, but I believe it to be powerful and I believe it to be purposeful. And I don't know what that purpose is in the lives of individual people here, but I believe that you will accomplish it. And so I pray once again for you to bring life to that which is dead, hope to that which is despairing, faith to that which is unbelieving, nourishment to that which is weak, Take these words, which are the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, and let us taste and experience their power. I ask this in Jesus' name.